This has been on my mind here recently, and I hope that this will make sense for all of us. I want to talk to you about dark days in the kingdom. Dark days in the kingdom. The first situation I want to put before you is about a senile old man being the leader of the nation. And the decisions and choices that he made were irrational, and he was being manipulated and controlled by his staff. Everyone knew that he had lost his mind. It was obvious from the way that he acted, and everyone on all sides knew that he was unfit to serve as leader any longer. But no one was willing to do anything about it. While at the same time, the opposing candidate was divisive, angry, vengeful, and vicious. This candidate, who was vying for power, was chased away by the forces that were in power. And it just made that candidate more vitriolic and hateful. And this recipe from both sides led to a nation divided, vulnerable, and in turmoil. People divided, people confused, and a general air of unrest with darkness everywhere. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Do you know what time frame I'm talking about? Well, this is 1 Kings, the 11th chapter. Might sound familiar, though. So if you think you can't identify with the Word of God, then you've got another thing coming. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been now has been before. And the only thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. <laughs> In 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, it was dark days for the Davidic kingdom, for David's kingdom. His son Solomon was on the throne and he was approaching the age of 70. And he had become senile, angry, vicious, and manipulated by his cabinet. You want to know a little bit about his cabinet? You can read in 1 Kings 10, 11. He had a thousand individuals in his cabinet. There were 700 wives and 300 concubines. And each one of those wives pulled him in a different direction. And it just made him more crazy. If you want to dig a little bit into his psychosis of what was going on in his mind, all you got to do is go read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a man who is torn between multiple worlds and miserable. He knows that his time is approaching. And as the time approaches, he doesn't grow more humble or kind. He grows angrier. And when God tells him in verse 9 of chapter 11, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. And the Lord was specifically mad and angry at Solomon because he had these thousand individuals in his cabinet advising him on what to do. And he was building idols all around. Every time someone would say, well, I don't have one, he'd build another false god idol. And then this wife would say, well, I don't have one for me. There's no telling how many idols were built in the nation, in God's nation at that time. God is angry. And look at verse 11. This, this seems to be the third time that God appears or at least talks to Solomon directly. And he says, wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, you see, it's not like Solomon didn't know that this was the message of God. For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. 
You see, Solomon had all the information to know. Much like King Saul, you remember when we did that series on David? Saul knew that his time was up. Solomon knew that he had offended God through his actions and through arrogantly thinking that he could try all these different things because he was so smart. That's what sin does to us. You know, it, 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 in a sense, the basic meaning of sin is just being irrational. Sin is just, you know, it is irrational in the Garden of Eden what Adam and Eve did. It's irrational. Solomon is irrational right here. Saul was irrational because God said, I'm taking it from you. And what, is, what did Solomon do? He began to chase after and pursue the guy who was next in line. He chased him away and just made that guy even more mad and angry and divisive. These are dark times. Look at what he says. Notwithstanding in thy days, Solomon, I will not do it for David, thy father's sake. So the kingdom's going to be rent from you, but I won't do it in your days. I'm going to wait till you die. Why? Because Solomon was so good, no, for the sake of another, for David, his father's sake. But I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Now watch verse 13. Because even when it is dark, even when the dark days come upon a nation like this, or a people, or a church, or a family, or an individual, don't forget, there's always hope. How be it? I will not rend away all the kingdom, verse 13, but will give one tribe to thy son for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. For the sake of another, the Lord left a little bit of hope there in the dark days of this kingdom, in the last days of this hundred plus year kingdom that had been the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. Now, it was not because they controlled the world. The reason they were the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth is because God, Jehovah, was their God. You see, it's not power and might that makes the greatest kingdom because there have been kingdoms that had power and might and at least tried to control the whole world. In the Old Testament, there were kingdoms that controlled the whole known world. Babylon, Persia, different ones at different times. But Jehovah was not their God. So they can never be as great as the nation whose God is the Lord Jehovah. You see? Even in the dark days of the final days of this senile old wicked man who had turned from the things of God, there was hope. The Lord said, I'm going to leave one tribe. You know what that tribe was? It was Judah. Judah was the line through which the lion of the tribe of Judah would come, Jesus Christ. God saved one tribe. There was a future, even in the dark days of that kingdom. You come on a few pages over to 1 Kings 17. And we have more dark days in a kingdom. And we switch to the northern kingdom of Israel, which was established after... These, the southern kingdom went down. And you have a fellow named Elijah the Tishbite, who was the great prophet, the great type of the forerunner in the Old Testament of John the Baptist. You know, it says John was like Elijah, but you know, Elijah was like John also. John the Baptist, when he comes many a thousand or more years, or seven or eight hundred years after this. So in, in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, this is a time of intentional persecution, very dark days. We read that a fellow named Ahab was on the, on the throne. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, the king, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, 
I'm not Elijah. You're not Elijah. Brother Luke's not Elijah. Other people that we know. But what if God called up an Elijah today and he said, Elijah, and, and remember now, the United States of America is, is not God's nation. You know, that Old Testament nation is no more. But understand, a nation can serve God and great things happen to that nation. We've seen that in the United States of America. But what if the Lord burdened a prophet, a preacher, we don't have prophets like they had back in those days, but just imagine if God said, go and tell the congressmen and the senators and the president, march into Washington, D.C., just walk in there and say, Mr. President, Mr. Congress, Mr. Supreme Court, there shall not be dew nor rain for the next however many years until my prayer goes up before the Lord and it's asked for. <laughs> what do you think the reaction would be? They'd say, that person's crazy. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's what happened right here in the Old Testament. In the dark days of this nation when this wicked king and by the way, you Bible readers know who his wife was. One of the reasons he was so wicked is because of his wife who stirred him up. Her name was Jezebel, whose name forever goes down in infamy because of who she was and how she conducted herself. She was pure evil. And she stirred up Ahab. And so Elijah goes into the court of Ahab. He marches in there. Notice he doesn't even address him by the name of king. That was kind of a death knell if you went into a king and didn't say, Oh, king, live forever. Or, Oh, king, you know, honorable king, whatever. Elijah just goes in there and says to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto Elijah at that point and said, Get out of there. I don't know how he disappeared from their presence, but you can imagine that Ahab or Jezebel especially immediately said, Arrest that man. But God was with Elijah in these dark days of persecution. And God sent Elijah out unseen, unheard. And as Ahab searched the countryside of his own nation and sent messengers and emissaries to all of the nations around looking for Elijah to persecute him, no doubt to kill him. As Jezebel says later, we're going to kill this guy. Elijah is hiding right there under his nose, just a few miles from where he was, up in the mountains at a little brook that continued to trickle and flow through the next couple years or year and a half of total drought. So you see, while all these dark days were happening, you know, God was still preserving His messenger and He was still preserving the message of God. But you had to dig for it, right? You couldn't just find it on the front page of the news. You couldn't find it on the local channels that broadcast all the gloom and doom on a consistent basis. You had to search for it, child of God. And there were a few in the kingdom who did. There was a man who was the right hand of, of King Ahab. Don't ask me how he got in that position, but this man was a child of God. And he was in that position. And when he, they finally encounter Elijah about three years down the road, this man finds Elijah and he recognizes Elijah and he says, I need to bring you to the king. This man knows that, the, that Elijah's not going to be touched or hurt by the king because God is on the side of Elijah. And Elijah basically interacts with this man and he says, I'll go with you because Elijah knows the Lord is on his side. By the way, this is just a couple days before he's on the run from this woman, Jezebel. <laughs> he had courage a couple days before that happened. And so the right hand man of the king looks at Elijah and he says, you know, basically, you're not the only one left. I have hid 
300 prophets of God in a cave for the last three years, fed them, gave them water. So you see, Elijah was not the only one. Not only that, you'll read in the New Testament and you'll also read here when God comes to Elijah and Elijah is having that pity party. He is down and he's been sucked in by the darkness, even though he's just seen the Lord drop fire from heaven. You want to read about those exciting events there where Elijah had the contest with the prophets of Baal after he was there in the presence of King Ahab. The prophets of Baal were slain and God dropped fire from heaven that licked up the water that was around the place where they were sacrificing. It licked up the water. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I think we would all be convinced if the Lord dropped fire from heaven and did something like that. And the people that were gathered there, they cried out. The people of Israel said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. When they saw the fire fall, and the very next day, Jezebel puts out a death warrant for Elijah. And Elijah takes off like a little scared puppy. He got sucked into the darkness. Child of God, don't get sucked into the darkness. Don't get sucked into the vortex of the darkness that is out there today. Whether it be in politics or whether it be locally or whether it be things that are coming at you that seem to keep coming at you. Don't get sucked into the darkness. Elijah got sucked in and the next thing you know, he's far away on the run and the angel of the Lord is feeding him a couple meals there and Elijah's saying, I'm the only one left. And just to prove how inaccurate that was, you remember the right hand man of Ahab said, you're not the only one left. I've got 300 down there that I have saved from being persecuted in these dark days. But Elijah says, I'm the only one left. That's the way we get when we get sucked in by the darkness. We think we're the only one left. And the Lord goes on and tells him, he says, Elijah, you're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 down there. 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So that's encouraging, isn't it? Elijah himself was standing for God. He had learned 300 were there standing for God. And now he's learned in his depression, in the darkness consuming him, he's learned there's another 7,000 throughout the nation. Child of God, don't ever forget that. In days when the prophets of God, when the, when the message of God seems to be hidden, keep digging for it. Keep looking for it. The message may be below the surface, but if you'll just dig, I promise you that you'll find it no matter how dark the times are. Look over the book of Nehemiah. Just trying to give you some examples about how to cope with dark days. When dark days come upon the kingdom of God, when dark days come upon a nation, when dark days come upon a family, when dark days come upon a church, when dark days come upon individuals, you will have those days. John 16 and 33, Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. How can we make it? Lord Jesus, tell us, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Look at Nehemiah, the fourth chapter. Dark days for the kingdom. By the way, from a natural standpoint, there really is no kingdom at this point. It's gone. It's been destroyed 70 years before. God has wiped out His own kingdom and they have gone into captivity in Babylon. And these are stragglers. These are ones that have been permitted to come back under the burden of the Holy Spirit to build back the city of Jerusalem. There's not even a kingdom to cling to at this point. As a matter of fact, they are technically citizens of the kingdom of Babylon. They don't have a nation at this point, a physical nation. You say, well, that looks bad how it was in the days of Solomon. Yeah, but they still had a nation. It looks bad what was going on in the days of Ahab. Yeah, but they still had a nation. They have gone through complete destruction of a nation. There is no visible kingdom at this point. You talk about hopeless. 
You say, what in the world could possibly burden these people who had the luxury of Babylon, you know, could, could visit the hanging gardens of the king, which was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Uh, what in the world would burden these people to leave the luxury that they had? About, you know, about the only thing they didn't have in Babylon was electricity. They didn't have, and you know, there's even some archaeological digs that have shown there might have even been some form of that back in those days. They were so sophisticated. They had running water. They had, they had marketplace. They had grocery stores. They had all of these things. What in the world could burden these folks that were, they weren't just nobodies. They were, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Do you understand that? He had a life of luxury. He had a life of ease as long as he did his job before the king. What in the world could burden someone with that kind of status? Just a, a, a just a hand's breadth away from the king. He handed the king his cup after he tested the cup to make sure there was no poison in it. This man is of high status. Don't forget that. What in the world could burden this man to leave that life of luxury? What is the point of going back when you don't even have a nation? I tell you, that's where the hope of God rises up inside of a child of God and burdens them to do things that look strange to the world. They don't look normal to the world. And I pray to God, child of God, during times of darkness, that the Lord will burden you to do things that look strange to the world. There was nothing that Nehemiah wouldn't give up to go back and work on the kingdom of God. And that's what he did. And they didn't even have a visible nation at that time. In Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, they ran into some problems. They went with the king's blessing. They went with the king's decree. But when you follow the Lord and you do things that look strange to the world, you're always going to have opposition from the world. And when they showed up, it grieved the enemies of Israel that anybody was here to take up for Israel. And so they began to manipulate, hired lobbyists to lobby the king back in Babylon. This doesn't need to happen. This is bad. These guys are going to be, it's not going to be good whenever they build their city back. They're going to rebel. And these fellows named Sanballat, Tobiah, and another one, the, the Arabians, the Amorites, the Ashdodites, these men began to conspire to try to attack and kill the Jews. They put marauders together, secret armies, so that they could just kill these guys and leave them for dead. And nobody would ever know what happened. Nehemiah 4 and verse 8, they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder the building of the wall of Jerusalem. That's what they're there for, is to rebuild the wall. Because when Nehemiah in the first chapter, when he heard the condition of the nation, whenever he heard the condition of the city, the gates were gone and the city was burnt with fire and there were no walls around the city. And the poorest of the poor of the people were afflicted in that area. It put a fire in his heart. <laughs> I believe this fire that he felt in his heart was very similar to the fire in the heart of a man of God who's called to preach. That you know he could preach to a steering wheel, he could preach to a tree, he could preach to a field, he could preach to anybody that will listen to him. Whenever a man of God is called and burdened to do something, he can't keep it inside. And I remember feeling that way. I preached to a lot of trees and a lot of tractor wheels and a lot of car steering wheels until the Lord finally gave me an opportunity to preach to people. <laughs> Nehemiah is feeling that kind of burden. He wants to go back and help. The people of God there in that area. And it says they were there. They were working on the walls. It says, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, the men of Judah who were there, the strength of the bearers of burden is decayed and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. They had so much trash laying around from all of their building. Have you ever built anything? I mean, you're going to have piles of trash all around. 
And a lot of times the old contractors that I've been around, you know, they'd have a little burn pile where they'd keep burning off the trash and stuff so it'd be out of the way. But if you just let that trash pile up while you're building something, it's going to get in your way. That's what happened here. It says our adversaries, they shall not know neither see till we come in the midst among them. They, the adversaries could slip in among the trash and the rubbish and sneak up on them and attack them. Verse 12, And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came and said unto them ten times... They warned them ten times from all places which you shall return, they will be upon you. They're coming after you. Watch what Nehemiah does in this dark time when they don't even have a president or a dictator or a governor over them. And what's the point of doing this? Everything is against them. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. He put them on the wall by families because they would be more prone to fight for their families. You see? Verse 14, And I looked and rose up and stood over them and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people. Listen to the battle cry of Nehemiah. Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. In the midst of this darkness, he stood up and he cried out to them to fight for one another, stand for one another, support one another, love one another. In this situation, take up arms against the enemy that's going to come after you. And so they won't kill your son or your daughter, you see. So what's the point? The point is, sometimes all you have left to do is just to fight, to stand for the things of God when everything seems to be against you. One more example. In Matthew, the fourth chapter. Matthew, the fourth chapter, and in verse 12. You could have no darker time presented in history than in the days when the Son of God set aside His regal splendor clothed himself in flesh and came down to the broken world to walk here on this earth. And there could be no more time of turmoil in the sense of what was going on in the region where he was. Now, remember this. It's interesting that the Lord sent His Son in the days of what was known as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace, a time of peace in general throughout the empire. But in the area of Judea, it was nothing but turmoil. It was forced peace upon the nation, the people that were considered themselves to be the nation of Judah. And Jesus comes into this political chaos, into this dark time, and He begins to just speak peace to the people. You know, I've said before that Matthew, the fifth chapter, which you're about to see here in right after chapter four, I've said before that was the constitution of the kingdom of God, where he, he was giving them the rules of the kingdom of God, where he says the blessings, the introduction of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going about doing these things in the midst of horrible situation. And on top of that, Jesus's own cousin, John the Baptist, who has spoken out against the corruption and against the terrible things that were going on in that nation he has been put in prison and he's soon to be beheaded don't ever forget that that's your legacy he was john the baptist and you're a baptist the legacy of the first baptist was that he had his head cut off for standing for what he believed in so that's scary well, I'm going to tell you what, we're still talking about him today almost 2,000 years later praise God he stood in a very dark time and Jesus, it says in verse 12, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, 
he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. By the way, if you'll read carefully what's going on here, Jesus left being a resident of Nazareth at this point, and he establishes residency in Capernaum. In those days, if you lived somewhere for 12 months or more, that's was considered to be your hometown. And so because he was rejected in his hometown, he goes and he takes up residency in Capernaum. It's one of the most amazing things that you read about in the Word of God when it comes to the miracles of Christ and the messages of Christ happen in or near Capernaum. It is upon the seacoast and the borders of Zabulon and Naphtalim that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon, the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, as light sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is at hand. This little carpenter preacher from Nazareth who has now taken up residency in Capernaum and his cousin is in jail, he begins to preach. And it says that light sprung up to the people in a dark, dark time. Child of grace, maybe, maybe we are experiencing dark days in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, maybe it just helps us see how much we need to rely on the light of God, which is the Son of God. He is light. He gives light. His light is truth, and His truth is light. Where is it? Keep digging for it. Keep searching for it. You'll find it in the most obscure places. You'll find it in the beauty of nature, yes. You'll find it in the church of God. You'll find it in the people of God. You'll find it whenever you think all hope is lost. Maybe you're familiar with a very dark time in history. In the days of World War II, the days when Hitler was trying to exterminate an entire race of people. One of those people was Anne Frank. And in her diary, sadly, she later died just a few months in a concentration camp, just a few months before the Allies came along and liberated that area. But Anne Frank wrote, What a wonderful thought it is that some of the best days of our lives, our lives haven't yet happened. You hear that? That was a 15-year-old girl. What a wonderful thought it is that some of the best days of our lives, lives haven't yet happened. Isn't that good to know? That applies to us. The best day of your life has not yet happened. That day will be when you go to see the Lord. But until then, it doesn't mean that you have to live in misery. I guess my mind has been on these things related to that dark time in history whenever Hitler was doing all of that persecution against the Jews. But another writer Corey Tinboom spoke of this and I can you get any darker than this listen Corey Tinboom had a sister Betsy and much to Corey's initial consternation would daily thank God for the fleas that was in the barracks where they were being held in the concentration camp she would thank God for the fleas y'all ever been afflicted by fleas that's not fun is it I've had a few on me and you know you could tell that when that Flea begins jumping, you know it's a flea. It's not just a ladybug or some other kind of bug. I said, uh-oh, it's not a gnat. It's a flea. Got to go after those fleas. The barrack was consumed with fleas. And Corey Tinboom was upset that her sister was praying and thanking God for the fleas. Betsy had stated in their barracks that she was committed to thanking God for all things, even fleas. 
Day after day, she thanked God for fleas. When Corey could take it no more, she rebuked her sister sharply in front of all of the barracks mates. And that is when her sister observed that they were the only barracks in the concentration camp that were left who were able to pray and study the Bible and have Bible studies. You know why? The guards would not enter where they lived because of the flea infestation. Corey became thankful for fleas. Can you see that? Thank God for these fleas. You know why? There was something worse than fleas. You understand that? So here it is. Dark days in the kingdom. If it's a time of irrational and failed leadership, you can believe in a future. There is a future. If it's a time of intentional persecution, you can stick with the remnant of God like Elijah and the 300 and the 7,000. If it seems like a time for lost causes like the days of Nehemiah, what's the point? You can fight for your families and for your church. And if it seems to be like it was in the days of Jesus, dark days, a time of forgotten promises, can it really be true that the Messiah is coming and He was standing right there among them? Just follow. Just follow the Lord in full obedience. I hope that we can see the battle cry. Be not afraid. Remember the Lord, which is great, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. We don't fight one another. We fight the darkness and continue to push back against the darkness.